Well, good morning, Harmony Bible Church. My name is Clay Baker. I'm the Burlington campus pastor. It's my privilege to be preaching this morning in our last section of our study of the book of Ephesians. So I hope we're all ready for that. I'm excited about it, excited to wrap up what's been a great series. You know, at the 8.30 service, we had the privilege of having uh, a missionary visit us, and, and we prayed for him. His name is Rashid. He, he serves in Morocco. He's one of the missionaries that we support here at Harmony. And he's over there planting churches in Morocco. And I'm sorry you didn't get to hear from him at the 10.30 service, but he had to scoot on to Danville and share there. But, you know, as I was listening to Rashid share about how they just go and community to community and follow up on people's requests for Bibles and plant churches... I was struck by two conflicting thoughts. And one was that, you know, I was just reminded that what Rashid's doing today and what our missionaries are doing all over the world and what we're doing here at Harmony through them and by supporting them is the same thing Paul was doing 2,000 years ago. And so 2,000 years ago when Paul is writing this letter, he's engaged in that missionary church planning work. And so this one thought I had was, man, 2,000 years, that's a long time. God, when are you coming back? When's it going to end? When's it going to be wrapped up? Because sometimes, you know, this life feels hard and it feels long and it feels like a struggle. And I imagine you can relate. And I think 2,000 years and we're still at it. Then the other thought I had was I was reminded from the truth of God's word, 2 Peter 3, 9, reminded me that uh, God is not slow, as some count slowness, but rather he's patient. You see, he wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So that was kind of a heart check for me, you know, like, you know, as I, as I struggle, as I toil, as I'm maybe getting impatient, God is patient, and he's just working because he does, and he keeps working 2,000 years plus, because he wants more and more and more people to come into his kingdom. And so that's a less selfish way, I think, of thinking about my life, my circumstances. But you know, it doesn't surprise me, it shouldn't surprise us, that life feels hard sometimes, because this last section of Ephesians makes crystal clear that life is not a vacation. Life is a war. We are in a very real war, a battle, against a very real enemy, the devil. And that's what our last passage is about, this battle that we're all in. But you know, there's good news. There's good news. As scary as that might seem, this thought of being in a battle with the devil and his spiritual forces, the good news is, is that we're not called to win that fight. See, instead, that fight has already been won by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has achieved the victory and now we are just called to stand in it. We who believe in Jesus Christ are called to stand in his victory. And that's the good news. And so we'll look at our passage today, how we can stand in that victory. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using our auditorium Bibles, it's on page 767. Our passage is verses 10 through 24 of chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first verse to start us off, verse 10. Paul writes, finally, see he's summing up his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. That's the overarching command of this whole passage. Be strong in the Lord. And actually that word in the Greek means be strengthened. It's a passive. Be strengthened by God. Be strengthened in the Lord. So that's what all of this is going to be about. How we can be strong in the Lord. And we're going to see that there's three ways that we're strong in the Lord. Or in other words, being strong in the Lord means three things. It means knowing our enemy. It means putting on God's armor, and it means fighting with prayer. So let's look at the first one. Being strong in the Lord means knowing our enemy. Verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we've got armor that we've got to put on, and we need to put on armor because we've got an enemy. The schemes of the devil is what we're fighting against. You know, sometimes enemies are really easy to identify. So the other night, my, my family and I, my wife and I, our three boys, we were playing uh, Harry Potter-themed Uno. Any of you played Harry Potter-themed Uno? <laughs> well, Harry Potter-themed Uno is just Uno with Harry Potter cards, all right? And my wife, Olivia, knows nothing about Harry Potter. But you know what? When she saw the card that had Lord Voldemort on, him, on it, she knew he was the bad guy. She goes, oh, who's that guy? Oh, he's got to be the bad guy. And then, of course, my boys chime in, that's Voldemort, that's Voldemort. And then I go on and explain who Voldemort is at length. <laughs> and why, why could she spot him? Well, because he looks like a snake. I mean, this, he's a really bad-looking dude. But, you know, sometimes enemies are not so easy to spot. And I think that's true with our enemy, the devil, here in 21st century America. I think he's done a really good job concealing himself. And I think he wants to do that. I don't think he wants us to be aware of him because I think he wants, that makes him more dangerous. Any, any, any Harry Potter nerds know that even Lord Voldemort, after he comes back at the end of Goblet of Fire, book four, <laughs> he didn't want to be out in the open, not for a while. He wanted to operate under the radar. That's what the devil's done to us today in 21st century America. You don't learn about the devil in school. You don't learn about this spiritual battle that we're engaged in. No, everything's got a natural explanation. Everything's got a cause. Everything's got a logical rationale. In fact, if you were to attribute causes to the demonic, you might sound like a crazy person. Might be laughed at, ridiculed. Certainly wouldn't get a passing grade on your exam in school. So I think the devil's done a really good job of blinding us to him. But you know, Paul here is shining a light on the devil. And even we, even we who don't see him face to face, and we don't see necessarily the, the a physical manifestation against, of our spiritual enemies, the demons, we can see the effect they have on our lives. And we can see... From our experience, and we can see from God's word what the devil wants for us. I mean, just, just flip back to chapter 2. Just see what kind of leadership the devil leads in. 
So chapter 2, verses 1 and, and, and on, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's all of us before we knew Jesus. That's those of us who still don't know Jesus. Dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world. Following, here it is, the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, we come into this world and we don't actually have a good nature, contrary to what you might learn at school or elsewhere. We're not born good. We're born sinners. And the devil, this prince of the power of the air... He wants to take our sinful nature and fan it into flame. He wants to stir up into us every kind of disobedience such that we could be called sons of disobedience. He wants that, he wants that to be who we are. Think about him tempting Jesus in the desert. He wants to draw us away from obedience to God. He wants to wreak havoc in our lives. He wants to destroy our marriages. He wants to poison our relationships. He wants, he wants to, us to give ourselves over to every kind of greed and lust and depravity. He, he, he causes in us a, a gnawing craving and emptiness. It's never good enough. We're never content, never satisfied, always wanting more and more and more. That's what the devil wants for us. That's his rule and his reign. That's what characterizes his kingdom. But you know what? If you're in Christ, you're not subject to his kingdom. He's not your prince anymore. And as scary as it is that we've got this devil and his demons up in the heavenly places, you know who else is in the heavenly places? I hear the whisper. Jesus! Look back at chapter 1. Verse 20 and on, Jesus Christ was seated by God the Father at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. It's what we just sang, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, even the demons, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So up in the heavenly places is seated the exalted Christ at the Father's right hand. And then down in verse 6, we see who's seated with Jesus? Who's up there with him? Those of us who believe. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So yeah, we've got some spiritual, scary forces at work in this world, but we've got a risen, exalted Lord and Savior who's over all of them, and we are seated with him. Amen. Amen. So we're not subject to his rule. We don't have to give in to his reign. We don't have to be ruined by him like he would have us if we're aware of him. British pastor David Jackman puts it this way. I'll spare you my British accent. It's not very good. He says, if you're bumbling along in life, you're going to be a tasty morsel for Satan to gobble up. 
But if we are aware, then our chances of victory are certain because they depend on the divine power. If we're aware of our enemy and engaged in the fight, our chances of victory are certain because they don't depend on us, depend on God. So being strong in the Lord means, first, knowing our enemy. Being strong in the Lord also means putting on God's armor. So now this is the longest and most uh, famous part of our passage, the armor of God. I know we got kids in the service with us today. Any kid from, that's ever been in Sunday school or VBS has probably learned the spiritual armor and sang songs and done hand motions, and I'm going to spare you all that too. The kids would probably love it, but I don't think you would appreciate my singing voice and my hand motions. Anyway, we got to put on God's armor, the whole armor of God, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, so being strong in the Lord, fighting this battle against the devil means putting on God's armor. And it's all of it. We need all of it. Now, Paul identifies different pieces of it, but it's really a package deal. It's really a package deal that's available to anyone who believes in Christ. And so this is, this is at the end of Paul's letter of Ephesians. Even these pieces of armor are like themes throughout the letter. And so I'm going to walk through each one quickly, and I'm going to pull in other places where we've seen these truths, these themes in Ephesians. So let's start with the belt of truth. The belt of truth. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul, is refer, Paul refers to the word of truth as the gospel of our salvation. So the belt of truth is the gospel, the gospel of our salvation, the good news. And as we know from the sermon series, Gospel Life, the gospel runs throughout this letter. And it's of first importance. It's the first thing we must put on. Has anybody, try, has anybody seen anyone try to like run with their pants sagging without a belt? Have you seen that? It doesn't work, does it? And a Roman soldier, this is the imagery Paul's calling to mind, that of a Roman soldier, they wouldn't be able to fight without their belts on. Now, they, they may not have been wearing pants, their pants may not have been dragging to their ankles, but they had these, these robes and these other long hanging garments. They needed to be fastened up. They needed to be tucked in. Otherwise, they'd be tripping all over themselves. And so, too, we need to put on the belt of the gospel to hold ourselves together. And what's the gospel? Well, we've already talked about Ephesians 2, but we'll talk about it again. We were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been made alive with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. 
So that's the gospel. That's what we're to put on as a first importance. We need to remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel. We were once dead, now we are alive. And not only are we speaking that truth to ourselves, but if we recall Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we're to be speaking truth to our brothers and sisters. Speaking the truth in love to build each other up. So we need to be reminding each other, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, encouraging each other in our faith, reminding each other of gospel truths. That's all part of the belt of truth. We've also got the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 24, we learned that we uh, have a new self. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we put on a new self that is made in the very image of God. It says we have put this on in Christ. Oh, excuse me. It says we are, we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul calls us to live in light of that. To live that way. So when we believe in God, or in Christ, excuse me, we're cloaked in his righteousness. But then as we know, we're, we're all still like sinners, right? And so Paul exhorts us to live in light of who we actually are in Jesus. We have this new identity in Jesus as forgiven sinners. We're forgiven. God the Father sees us as righteous just like he sees his son. And so Paul calls us to live like that. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And why is that important? Well, as we sin, and we do keep sinning, our best defense against the schemes of the devil is going to be reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. That even while we sin, we are forgiven by the blood of Christ. That Christ's blood covers all of our sin. But you know what? If we continually give ourselves over to our sins, the attacks, the schemes, the lies of the devil are just going to be that much more potent. I mean, when we're caught up in sin, in serious sin, that's when the devil is at his most powerful, speaking those lies in our heart. Are you really saved? Does God really love you? How could he really love someone like you? And so while our first and best defense against that is to put on the belt of the gospel, put on the belt of truth and remind ourselves of the gospel, you know what's another good defense? It's just not getting caught up in all those sins in the first place. To living in a righteous way, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, being holy like Jesus is holy. And we can do that in the power of the Holy Spirit and not perfectly, but it's, it's critical. It's essential. It's the breastplate of righteousness. The next item of our armor is the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. All right, so Roman soldiers, they wore cleats. They weren't like sneakers. They had cleats on them to dig into the ground. And so we've already talked about the gospel and what that means. But here, Paul refers to it as the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. And that calls to mind back in chapter 2, the end of it, 
how he talks about how Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off. It's the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And he preached peace to those who are near, the Jewish people. And that through Christ, we all have access in faith to one God. And so there were groups of people, and there are groups of people today, marked by hostility and differences. But in Christ, we have unity. We're made one with God, and we're made one with each other. And so these are the shoes that we're to put on. So think about what's going on in France right now. We actually, do you know we actually have some people that live in France right here in this auditorium at this very moment? I won't embarrass them, but we do. <laughs> Women's World Cup, right? Women's World Cup. Anybody been watching the Women's World Cup? Yeah, it's been, it's been great. So what do they do when they sing the national anthem? Both teams come out. This is true for a lot of soccer matches, or I think maybe any of them that I've seen. And both teams line up shoulder to shoulder in one long line, cleat to cleat. And they listen to the national anthems of each country. And so they express or they demonstrate their unity, in this case, their unity in soccer, I guess, or sport, even though they're on opposing sides. And we have an even better, more meaningful unity because we're actually all on the same team. So whether you were a a Muslim like Rashid was over in Morocco or whether you were born into a Bible-believing family right here in Iowa, the moment you place your faith in Christ, you are united with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And so Paul's calling us to stand in that gospel unity. This This isn't solo combat. This isn't like two gladiators going out in the Colosseum fighting each other one-on-one. This is an army. This is a battle line. Shoulder to shoulder with your brother and sister, standing in the truths of the gospel. Standing in the truths of the gospel. All right, that's the gospel of peace as shoes for your feet. Next, we have the shield of faith. The shield of faith. There's two prayers in Ephesians, prayers that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. One's in chapter one, one's in chapter three. In chapter one, Paul prays that the the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power working in those who believe. And in Ephesians three, Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And so what we can see here is that faith is the means by which we experience unity with God and the means by which we experience God's power working in us. By believing, by holding on to God's promises. That's how we put up our shield, our shield which extinguishes all the, the flaming darts of, of, of the devil. You know, so, so Jesus said that if we had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, we could move mountains. Now, if we can move mountains with our faith, surely we could put out these little darts, these flaming arrows with the shield of faith. And what does it look like? Well, it, it, look, all this stuff is interrelated. This is the gospel life, right? The gospel, this, this, this 
book is all about the gospel. So once again, how do we put up our shield of faith? Well, we cling to, we put up the promises of the gospel. We just sang, we just sang some great truths. We just sang, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's the shield of faith. When you sing that, when you cry that out from the bottom of your heart, you're putting out the shield of faith. You're clinging to God's promises. Finally, the last bit of defensive armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. The whole letter is about our salvation. But Paul uses this phrase here, and I think he's referring back to Isaiah 59, where it also refers to the helmet of salvation. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that in Isaiah, it's actually God putting on the helmet of salvation, it's his helmet. And so what I think Paul's doing here is reminding us that this is God's armor. This is God's armor and he's given it to us. So this is like Thor taking off his helmet and giving it to you. But it's like way better because instead of like a made up like superhero helmet, I mean, this is the helmet of God. The helmet of the God of the universe. And how do you, how do you put on a helmet? Grab it with two hands. Put it over your head. So this isn't just a casual or passing acknowledgement. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved. Salvation. I, I, know, I know that. But no, this is a fight with the devil that we're engaged in. And so putting on the helmet of salvation is really grabbing hold of those truths and being sure of them and putting them on. Commentator Harold Honer puts it this way. He says, with his head protected... The soldier feels safe in the midst of battle. Likewise, believers' possession of salvation gives them confidence of safeness during the assaults of the devil. So be sure of your salvation. Be sure of your salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let the devil put seeds of doubt in your mind or in your heart. I think that's why Paul Back in chapter 3, he prayed that we would have strength to comprehend, to understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, we, Paul's praying that we would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. God's love for us is just incomprehensible. We can't understand it. And yet Paul's praying that we would understand it. And I think more and more as we understand God's love for us, then more and more we understand the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us. And how much his love just covers us and how he just wants us, he just wants the very best for us. And that if he's with us now, he will be with us always. It's the helmet of salvation. All right, finally, in this armor, we've got the weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, none of us have probably engaged in sword fights, I hope. But we've all seen some movies. What's the last thing 
that the soldier does as the enemy is approaching? Draws a sword. So Paul concludes his list of spiritual armor with the sword of the word. I mean, Star Wars fans, how do you know the fight's about to happen? Right? Right? I mean, they kind of, there's kind of some quiet walking, maybe some circling, maybe some barbing back and forth, and then that's how you know the fight's about to begin because they draw their lightsabers. A believer would never engage in this fight with the devil without drawing his sword. The very word of God. And the devil, he attacks us in really specific ways. And we are to combat that with specific truths. In fact, even the the type of sword Paul's talking about here is this Roman short sword for like precision thrusting. And so as the devil tempts us in various ways, and we've seen in Ephesians all sorts of ways he wants to lead us astray, but... Let's just, take, let's, take, let's just take several of them. Why not, right? When the devil invites you to gossip, you remember that Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up. When the devil tells you to take another drink, just one more glass of wine, just one more beer, you remember that Ephesians 5.18 says that getting drunk is debauchery, and that instead you should be filled with the Spirit. When the devil says, hey, it's okay if you slack off at work and your boss doesn't really deserve your hard work anyway because he's, well, whatever. You remember just last week, Ephesians 6, 7, that we're to render our service to our employers with a goodwill as to the Lord. And maybe most importantly, when you are hearing the devil's lies that, you know, maybe if you were just a little bit better, maybe if you just tried a little bit harder, Maybe if you just did a little less sinning and were a little more righteous, maybe then, maybe then God would love you. Maybe then God would accept you. Well, then you remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. You know, I'm such a dummy. So this week, I, I, you know, I opened the sermon with life feels kind of hard sometimes. Life was feeling kind of hard this week. And, and it was feeling like a drag. And, you know, I'm, and as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm just being drugged down. And I'm just, I, I'm not even thinking about it. And then I had this wake-up call. The Holy Spirit was saying, Clay, you dummy, why don't you practice what you preach? And so I was having some, you know, bitterness or some anxiety, some doubt, just, just, eh. But then I remember Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. So I had to practice what I preach. It goes on to say, and then the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what happens. I offered my request up to the Lord with thanksgiving. And he gave me a sense of peace. But that's what wielding the sword of the Spirit looks like. We're attacked in specific ways by the devil, and we are to combat those attacks with specific truths from God's word. 
And it just really highlights the importance of being in God's word and saturating yourself in God's word so that the truths of God's word are really at the tip of your tongue. So that you're not fumbling around with the sword when the enemy attacks. But you can draw it with confidence. A soldier would never go into battle without his sword. So that's the armor, folks. The defensive and the offensive. And we're called to put it on. And it's God's armor. And he makes it available to us. So we're to be strong in the Lord by knowing our enemy and by putting on God's armor. And finally, we're to be strong in the Lord by fighting with prayer. Fighting with prayer, verses 18 through 20. Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer is how we fight the battle. It's how we put God's armor to use. We've heard of prayer warriors, right? We love prayer warriors. They're people, this was, that's where that term comes from. They're putting on the armor of God and they're engaging with the devil in prayer. And while I'm so thankful for the prayer warriors in our church, and there are many, we're all called to be prayer warriors. All of us. This is for all believers. Paul makes frequent use of this word all just in these first or these few verses. When are we to pray? At all times. What are we to pray about? All things, all prayer and supplication. Are we to give up? No. We're to pray with all perseverance. And to whom or for whom are we to pray? Well, all the saints, everyone. I said before, this isn't a solo battle. You don't fight this on your own. So yes, pray for yourself. That's essential. But we need to be praying for each other too. We need to be fighting this battle with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so one of the ways we do that is obviously to pray for them. But you know, there's, there's, it takes two to tango, right? So one of the ways we can become more of a praying church is if we're a little more free about sharing our prayer requests with others. So think about when the last time, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you honestly and genuinely asked your brother or sister in the Lord to pray for you? And I hope more and more we would make that a regular part of our lives because it's essential. I mean, you can do it through the response card. You can do it through growth groups. You can do it by just nudging someone next to you after the service and go, I need, I need some prayer. I need some prayer. Can you pray for me? And then I'm sure your brother or sister would be happy to do that. And guys, we need it. We need it. It's a real fight we're engaged in and it's a spiritual fight and we need the prayer of our brothers and sisters to fight it, to stand. Paul needs it. Paul says, pray also for me. Did you catch that? He's not entirely selfless in this. He's saying, pray for all the saints, make all supplication for all the saints everywhere and pray also for me, please, because I need it. I'm right there with him. 
I'm right there with him. And you should be too. We should all be. We should all be right there with Paul. We need it. We need prayer. So we need to be praying for ourselves. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. More and more, we need to be a people of prayer, which means making our requests freely known. So all of this is to be called, or is calling us to be strong in the Lord. We're strong in the Lord by knowing our enemy. We're strong in the Lord by putting on God's armor, relying on his strength that he makes available to us. And we're strong in the Lord by fighting in prayer. So Paul concludes this letter, just a few verses left. We're reminded again of our missionaries overseas. You know, Paul's a missionary planting churches, verses 21 and 22. Really, this is, this is like a missionary prayer letter that we might receive today. Paul's already told him or told them how he's praying for them. He's just now asked them to pray for him. And now he says he's sending this letter with his ministry partner, Tychicus, great name, so that they would know how he's doing and what he's up to. And he's already filled this letter, of course, with all sorts of great encouragement and truth. And again, just like we might receive from a missionary today. And so again, it reminds me, Paul's, Paul's out and about planting churches, and we've got brothers and sisters all over the world planting churches, and we're here engaged in that too. It's part of our mission at Harmony Bible Church to see God's name be glorified more and more all over the earth. And so it caused me to think, you know, our, our warfare, our spiritual battles, they, they might look a little different. So Rashid in Morocco, so what's, what's common for Moroccan Muslims to experience when they become Christians? Well, they can just be, expect to be excommunicated from their families to start. They may face much worse. And they can't gather together to worship in public places or in large groups. They got to meet quietly in homes, house churches. And in some places in the world, it's a lot worse than that. And there's very imminent fear of death for becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. That's a type of spiritual warfare they face that we don't really face to the same degree here. Maybe the same type and not the same degree. You know, we got our own spiritual battles and we know them well. And the devil, like I said, he wants to inflame all the, the lusts of our flesh inside of us. He wants to lead us off into the ways of the world. And there is just no shortage of opportunities to do that here in 21st century America. No shortage of worldly pleasures and pursuits for us to follow after. So we have our own spiritual battles. We have our own fights on our hands. But how do we stand? Whether you're Rashid in Morocco, or here right in Burlington, Iowa, or whether you're Paul 2,000 years ago, we all stand the same. We stand in the strength of the Lord. We stand in his strength. We put on his armor. We fight his fight through prayer. We stand together. Last two verses are beautiful. Paul ends with a benediction. It's a blessing on his readers. He says, Peace be to the brothers and love 
with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is so good. He sends us peace and love. The God of the universe wants us to have peace and love from him. Then he says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Those last two words, love incorruptible, they do just about, they do more than almost anything else to make me so convinced of the victory. And why do I say that? Because I know that my love for God is not perfect. I have an imperfect love for him. And yet, by God's grace, Paul is saying, God is saying, he transforms that love into a love that is incorruptible. A love that is undying. A love that will remain. The victory has already been won, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ has defeated the devil and his demons, and it doesn't matter what they throw at you, you can stand in that victory. You can stand on the rock of the gospel. Jesus Christ, focusing your imperfect love on him, who he is, what he's done for you, how he died for you, how he promises forgiveness or he has given forgiveness to you and promises eternity for you. You stand on him and you stand together and through the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, we will stand. We will stand. Please pray with me.